Welcome to the first episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. My name is Emma Robertson and I'm an editor and music journalist based in Berlin. Joining me today to talk about confidence and growth as an artist is Robert Henke, perhaps better known by his stage name, Monolake. Robert is a co-founder of Ableton, a longtime electronic music artist and a visual artist whose recent efforts are laser-based audiovisual shows which he designs and programs himself. Robert's first foray into these performances was called Fragile Territories, and it was a laser-based installation which debuted in 2012. Since then, he's moved on to live performances like his esteemed Lumiere series, which is entering its third iteration in 2017. Last year at Loop Festival, Robert brought his Fragile Territories installation back for the third time, this time with a few small changes which he described in a brief Q&A at the festival. One important change, which was actually the inspiration for today's theme of confidence, was the frequency in which a certain element occurred in the installation. So first of all, thank you so much for taking the time. Sure. I want to start by talking about something that you said at Loop Festival in November. You told the story about the Fragile Territories installation where you said that in the project's first iteration, there was a certain element that you'd programmed to occur, something like every three seconds. Um, and since then, in the new iterations of the installation, the element has occurred kind of less and less frequently as you've grown as an artist. Could you maybe share that story again? When I started working on Fragile Territories, which was my first laser installation, I needed to solve a technical problem which had to do with synchronizing four lasers so that they draw one single shape. And as a technical test, I decided to create a black shadow, which is uh, like a gigantic windmill blade that's cutting through the whole uh, scene. And once the technical problem was solved and I was happy with it, but I, I turned it off and then I noticed that I really liked that shadow and that it has to become part of the piece because it gave uh, a certain sense of uh, spatial depth of field. So the shadow became a very important part of the piece and when I first showed the piece in a, a real scenario, it was in a building with lots of columns and people walked in and were passing those columns and I liked the fact that uh, the columns obscured parts of the installation and the moving shadow obscured parts of the installation. It all came very nicely together. Um, in the first version, the shadow repeated every maybe three, four seconds. And now it only repeats every six seconds. And this is still enough to keep this idea of a rhythmical pace. You were saying at loop that you felt like in the beginning you had to have this element come in so frequently because with an installation, it's kind of like if somebody comes in and they get bored, then they leave, you know, so you felt like you had to show it so frequently to keep people's attention, I mm. guess. Um, and so can you tell me what it was like kind of taking that element and bringing it in a bit less frequently? Well, I mean, 
that specific element is a, is a example for something that is a very general experience when you try working on something you you hear and you see things for a very long period of time and it's very hard to not get bored by your own work so a classical challenge is to not add too many elements and it has to do with also confidence that at some point you can say okay I have these few elements and I can have them standing there by themselves without any change or only with very small changes for a longer period of time with more experience with a, within a specific work I get uh, a bit braver in, in those terms mm. I get brave enough to say okay I can remove elements and I can make changes slower because I trust more that what I'm doing is so convincing that it doesn't need to be a permanent bombardment of of new events. Mm. I like that story because I think it can apply to any kind of creative person, DJs for example, even writing, I mean as well I find as I do more interviews I realize that I don't have to touch on every single subject with the person that I'm interviewing. I can dig deeply into kind of one topic that I'm interested in instead of feeling like I have to talk about every release mm -hmm. or every label that they've been on. <coughs> How long did it take you to come to that realization that less is more? In, in theory, that's old. Uh, practically, it's, uh, it's an ongoing struggle. Every single time you do something again. And I feel that part of what I like in my work is actually detail. Uh, it's very important to me that there is uh, there's textures in, in detail, in, in sound and in the visual side of things. And those details, of course, imply that there's lots of microscopic changes going on and that those changes are meaningful. The big challenge is to create something that has very interesting texture and detail without being overwhelming in a in a negative sense. Do you think that a lot of other producers have that same challenge? <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that this because this seems to be such a a central part of what distinguishes in my opinion uh, a fantastic work from a not so good work. Hmm. Especially when you're working with, with technology these days it is very easy to achieve a lot of effects. It became very effortless. If you think about stuff like movie editing, uh, when you have to actually physically cut film, you think about every single edit and you develop a habit of being very precise and very uh, efficient in your, your language because everything else is tedious. If you edit a movie on a computer, you can uh, just create as many edits as you like and that's that of course opens a whole new world of possibilities but at the same time of course it makes it also very easy to mess something up completely mm. and um, move the attention to unimportant things uh, move the focus away from one strong idea towards a lot of small ideas and the same thing happens in music um, where everything can be constantly revised and 
so the big challenge is to find a good balance between a strong idea and the essence of what you want to express within a given work and the capability of changing it and manipulating it all the time. Mm. Um, I think it's an interesting kind of take on this balance between fear and confidence, like fear of being forgotten or fear of people getting bored and then having the confidence to kind of overcome that. Uh, perhaps, but even more so, it it touches on this interesting subject of predictability and artistic evolution, because there's there's this really interesting inherent contradiction that you start as an artist and you do something and you get recognized for that. And then people want you to repeat that. But at the same time, they also want you to change the allowed derivation from this specific path uh, is not so so big. You know, if you if you change too little, then people tell you that what you do became boring. If you change too much, then you can be 100% certain that someone will say, I like your older stuff much mm. more. I guess you can't and please everyone. <laughs> no, you can't, but uh, there, there is something interesting to it. There seems to be a, a, golden, a golden mean between learning something and becoming better in this and at the same time expanding what you do towards new fields. And for, for me, this is the, one of the, the biggest questions. Where do I want to go? What is, what, is the, what is a meaningful path of development that takes into account my, my heritage and the things I already know? but add something new to it that creates a, a meaningful path into an interesting future. Is that something that you're still struggling with or still working on, or do you feel like you've kind of achieved what you have set out to achieve? Probably never. I mean, part of the, of the beauty of the artistic process is that every result you achieve immediately opens new doors and new questions. So the, the more you know, the less you understand how little you know. Everything you learn, every skill you learn, every idea you have creates new ideas. So in a way, being not 100% satisfied with what you're doing is part of the motivation. The, the question is probably always, where do you locate yourself in any given moment in time in between feeling that what you do is complete crap? and feeling that everything you do is fantastic. And somewhere in between is a meaningful way to be in, a meaningful position to be in, because I need the feeling that I still have something to learn. I still, I need the feeling that there are still things which I, I'm very bad at and I need to become better. But at the same time, I also, of course, need the feeling that I indeed getting better. Mm. So if I only would feel nothing moves on, uh, it would be extremely uh, frustrating. If I feel I know everything, then perhaps my motivation to move on uh, would suffer. I was going to say, it seems like confidence can't really exist without fear of failure, fear, fear in some way. I would say so. I think the, the, the biggest part of this whole scenario is that you need something like an underlying confidence that what you do in general is, is right. So as long as you as you feel, okay, this is what I want to do in life, and this makes sense, uh, 
then you can cope with, with momentary uh, situations of underachievement. Yeah, if you if you do something like making music or creating audiovisual things or whatever artistic practice you do, and you do this for twenty years, then you you probably reached a point where you don't question this at all anymore. You know, it's that's yes, I am an artist, and that's my life, mm. and I know why I'm doing it. So is that how you feel? Would you say that you are, are no longer questioning yourself in, in that specific way? No, I'm certainly not. Um, I'm, I'm questioning the results, of course, and I'm questioning the, the relevance, whatever that means. Uh, I mean, relevance in, in the world of art is a very, very strange thing. Because uh, how do you define that? What, what makes it relevant? I have no idea how to define relevance in in absolute terms. For me personal, personally, um, as as long as I I get enough feedback from people who genuinely are happy with what I'm doing, uh, I move on. So I read that when you first started experimenting with lasers, you were worried about having them look cheesy. I mean, I think we all have this image in our head of a laser show uh, that's maybe a bit more commercial than something that you're doing. But obviously, eventually, you found an idea that you were confident in. So how did you know when you had achieved that? Was it kind of this light bulb eureka moment, or was it just a release of tension or a, a calm that you felt when you found the right idea? I, I think... Somehow I knew already when I was starting with it that there must be something else than drawing uh, Mickey Mouse figures. Um, that was very clear. I, I think with, without that confidence that I could do something that is cool, I wouldn't even started doing it. It Normally with the lasers it was actually the same thing as it is with any other things I do. It's always an oscillation between moments where I look and listen and think, this is really, really cool. This is exactly what it needs to be. This is great. And half an hour later, I look or listen to the same things and I think, oh, this is really boring. And um, there the confidence game comes back. Mm -hmm. you, You need to have the confidence to say, well, if I find it interesting half an hour ago, it was interesting and that didn't change much, so it can't be boring now. Mm-hmm. That is just my, my my perception which shifted, but not the work in itself. Mm-hmm. So with the lasers, very early on, I understood that what I'm doing is, is meaningful. What, what became better over the last seven years is the, maybe I could call it the vo- vocabulary, I have a a set of things which I know I can do with the lasers. It costs me less time to develop something new. Uh, I have a, a better understanding of the artistic and tec- technical limits. So I just become better in expressing myself within the medium. That doesn't necessarily mean that the works are getting better uh, in this abstract term of betterness. <laughs> uh, they they potentially can get more complex mm. they potentially can uh, be quicker to set up all those kinds of things but at the end of the day the 
the artistic quality, um, I wouldn't say there's a, it's it's better or, or it's, things are different. You know, I find an interesting example is let's say if you listen to to very early works of, of musicians, very, which are uh, composers, very er early works that are very raw mm. and not so sophisticated. But if the composer is great, they are raw, but they still already show the beauty of things to come. And the, the more mature works are not necessarily the ones which are better. They're mm. just more complex, more advanced. But with lasers, I feel the same thing. I I still very much like uh, Fractal Territories because I, I feel it given the fact that I had so little experience at this time, it's quite an achievement and I'm, I'm happy with that. So you don't look look back on it with like regret about it being your first installation? No, actually not at all. I think um, it's a really good piece. Uh, I have I have one installation which I did where I, where I feel a retrospective that that could have been much better. That was a site-specific installation I did. I think I also, even within that environment, I did the best I could do at this point. But the conditions were difficult, and I, I tried to overcome these, these, these difficult conditions in a way which I would probably approach differently nowadays and achieve a different result. So what was it like putting Fragile Territories back up at Loop last year? I mean, do you feel like people understood it a bit better than when you first brought it out? No, I, I think um, I, I reached a different audience because now when I do something, people come who already have an idea that I'm a person working with lasers and that this might be something of interest. So. There is a, a part of the audience which comes with more expectations. Mm. Um, in a way, an audience with more expectations is less easy to, to please because they expect it is good. And, mm -hmm. you know, whilst when I showed the first version in, in Nantes uh, in 2012, it just fell out of the sky, you know, it fell from the sky. It was, uh, okay, there's this guy doing a laser installation. Uh, <laughs> So that was, of course, for, for some people, a bigger surprise. Worked to your advantage. It, it probably did, yeah. But then again, the, the version which I showed at Loop, I made a few small, but in my opinion, very important changes, not only the, the, the overall pace, but also a, a few little details in how the structures, how the shapes are constructed. And whilst it is the same piece, I feel that those little changes uh, give it a, a much nicer quality. Mm. So in a way, I'm actually very much hoping that I can show this piece again somewhere because when I saw it again, I really liked it. That's also something which is very different from how I, I work when I make music. I can listen to my music all the time. Uh, such such large-scale laser works they need a space and they they need i can only experience them in such a space which means i'm pretty much in the same role as the audience i i haven't seen it much much more often than the audience <laughs> and 
when I see my own installations, I'm at least in 50% also my own audience. And I do it for myself also. I mean, I at the end, of course, I do something that I like to watch. I enjoy um, when I did my this spline installation, which I just did a few months ago in, in Switzerland. Um, at the opening evening, I, I sat on the floor with a glass of wine in my hand and I was <laughs> watching my own work and um, tried to force myself not to jump to the computer and make changes, mm -hmm. but say, okay, it's finished. It must be interesting having an installation and kind of being able to be part of the audience and watch it. What is that like for you watching your own work? It's it's very challenging in a different way because you know you, of course you you watch the reaction of every single person in the room. Ah, why is she leaving? <laughs> um, maybe it's boring. Maybe this part is longer. Ah, um, she's coming back with some wine. Good. <laughs> um, so, I I'm in this hybrid position there that I'm partially trying to analyze my own work through the eyes of the audience. So, okay, what can I learn from this for the next time? Mm. Um, but a part of me is just um, feeling a, a sense of achievement and relief that mm. it's up and running mm -hmm. and there's people and people watch it. There's these two things happening at the same time. Mm. The, the, the big analytic part, which tries to take as much as possible out of the situation to put it back into future work gaining understanding of audience interaction with the work, um, which I found very important to to see how, how people react to it who hasn't seen it before. And part of myself is then really just in this moment of it's done. There's a sense of achievement there. Definitely. So what was it like for you moving on from Fragile Territories to Lumiere from an emotional perspective? Did you feel a kind of sense of loss to be moving on from a project and starting something else? No, because since Fragile Territories is an installation which can be shown again and again, um, I don't, in this specific case, don't have a sense of, of I'm losing something. Where I, I have this much more is within the iterations of Lumiere. The, the very first iteration of Lumiere was, was based on improvisation and it was uh, driven by a lot of very naive ideas. Many of them didn't work out. Some of them did. And the result was in, in many ways quite rough. I was looking for something a bit more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And that's why I at some point decided to basically start again from scratch and find a better way to, to do a audiovisual laser live performance that is, well, technically and artistically more sophisticated. But of course, you you cannot um, simply update something without losing something. So in the process of creating Lumiere 2, I had to throw away a lot of um, crap from Lumiere 1, but I also had to throw away a few things which I really liked. And I had a certain sense of um, losing something at the same time. Mm. And I had to force myself to accept that and say, well, Overall, it makes sense to do this because what I gain is so much more than what I lose. But it is also clear that I'm losing something. Yeah. 
So what was that experience like for you when you realized that you had to restart? I read that you felt that there was a lack of perceived composition within that first iteration. So what was that like for you? Well, coming to the conclusion that Lumia 1 uh, sucks was was hard, was really hard. I'm sure. Because I put a lot of work in it and I had a sensation of big time failure. And um, admitting something like this for oneself after putting a year or something like this of work in a project, uh, that's not funny. Um, but uh, I, I made I thought I have two I have two options. The one option is I, I just give up and say, okay, that's all nonsense. Which at the same time also means discarding all the work I did. Mm. Or saying, okay, let's let's look at what was what was the essence, what was the core of it and start again from there. And that's what I did. And at the end of the day it was a, a very, very good decision because it led to Lumia two, which I found far more satisfying than the first version and that led to Lumia 3 which I again in in many ways believe is a step forward. So uh, I, I accept the fact that I have to let go from all the things to to reach new things. Mm. It seems like it must have taken a lot of strength to not only admit to yourself that something wasn't working, but then to kind of take that and learn from it and move on to this next thing. I mean, did you know at the time that you were going to do something that was better? Or was there a, a moment where you were thinking, I need to just scrap this? I, I think I was confident that <laughs> it can be better. Yeah. I mean, perhaps partially this has to do with the fact that I already could uh, see very much which parts of the technical infrastructure were problematic and th this brings me to my kind of um, unique position where I I am so deeply involved in the creation of, of my tools uh, which is a, a long and difficult story for me but at least it gives me on the, on the positive side it gives me the the handle to actually look at things from this technical perspective and say, okay, I know exactly what I need to do in order to make it better. In, 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 in the case of Lumiere, the, the confidence that I'm technically doing the right thing and that at the end of the day I will have a system which is very unique and no one else has, um, gave me already quite some yeah, confidence that I can do something with that. It's just like having suddenly a completely new paintbrush mm. and new types of colors. So you don't know yet what kind of picture you're going to draw, but at the same time you already understand that what I have here on my hands will allow me to create something that mm. is new. But so how did that work when you were doing this first iteration? Because Fragile Territories was an installation and obviously Lumiere is a real-time performance. I mean, you had the tools from fragile territories so you kind of knew what you were getting yourself into but obviously this is a whole different situation can you tell me a bit more about that experience was that a big struggle for you as a matter of fact uh, sometimes being naive is extremely helpful because you start things which you wouldn't do if you were sane 
and um, so I had this laser installation which <clears throat> was my first piece ever and it was a fantastic piece and I didn't understand that I was just lucky um, but I thought this is the pace in which things will develop creating a live performance shouldn't be a big deal I worked with lasers <laughs> I know how to do this um, I work with sound and live performance since, since a long time mm -hmm. so putting those two things it together how, how hard can it be <laughs> <laughs> exactly and little did you know yeah and that was really helpful because um, it, it took me where, uh, quite a long time well almost a year to figure out that things are not that easy but uh, my yeah my innocent approach uh, made me actually starting that whole thing hmm. do you think that the live performance aspect of it kind of took a bit of pressure off of you just in the sense that we were talking about before with an installation people can kind of come in and then leave when they're when they're done with it whereas with a performance people are kind of buying into watching the entire hour-long performance is that a bit of a pressure relief for you uh, actually quite the opposite <laughs> because with the installation the the contract you you engage with the audience is here is what I did have a look if, if you leave after five minutes, fine with me. Mm. If you stay for four hours, hmm, maybe it, maybe it makes <laughs> sense what I did. The, the potential level of expectations you want to fulfill, uh, there's much more leverage. But for a concert situation, uh, the, the scenario is much more uh, encapsulated. Okay, doors open, sto show starts. Mm. I want to be entertained for an hour, so give me something. Mm. Uh, see, there's so much attention uh yeah there's so much attention on on what goes on at this very moment mm -hmm. so in a way a concert situation in in my opinion especially with a seated audience at an audiovisual show uh, requires far more far more detail planning mm. uh, than than an installation because we're in in a way we are competing with cinema and I find this as a um, as a perspective very interesting, because if you think about cinema these days, you think about a piece of art which involves, in some cases, ten thousand people working for two years. This is um, twenty thousand man years. Mm. Imagine that. It's it's totally insane. Uh, you you reach a an amount of visual mastery and density, and you reach the same amount of density in the sonic world. Uh, still, the the amount of people working on on sound for one and a half hours movie versus people working on sound on music. That's a ratio of probably at least 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 in terms of man hours going in that. Mm. And it's a lot of responsibility for you, I guess, as just the sole. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so the question, the really interesting question is, how can you compete with that? Mm. So, so how can you compete with that? Well, um, <laughs> that's a question I ask myself <laughs> very often. Um, by... By focusing on 
on things that get lost in in a very uh, narration focused very in some way traditional way of of storytelling in cinema so uh, the, the lasers are very primitive I can only draw very very basic shapes mm. uh, and that frees me of course from a lot of responsibilities I can only work with uh, this very archaic medium and can provide an experience that is more is far more abstract and is far more uh, driven by by things that happen in your brain rather than on screen. Mm. So do you feel like you're telling a story or a narrative with Lumiere? Like for me, for example, I feel like when watching it, I can definitely see the sense of growth. For Lumiere 3, I deliberately decided that I want to, to move on there a little bit mm -hmm. um, by, by finding a, a playful approach to, uh, to trigger uh, known things so uh, a, a circle is a circle but as soon as I uh, create some lines and have an arrangement of lines it immediately resembles symbols and text and I in the first iteration of Lumiere I was just using uh, text uh, in forms of, of numbers and uh, letters in a well a bit arbitrary fashion mainly because I was so happy that I could actually technically technically draw that so I had this this letters and, and numbers all over the place sometimes and for Lumia 3 I decided uh, I need to find something that that explains the existence of these shapes and I decided that part of what Lumia 3 is about is that the the letters I draw and the and the numbers are part of some interface, some user interface I see, uh, some very archaic, very simple, you know, maybe very outdated user interface, but at the same time um, very futuristic. So there's a bit of a, a strange. Um, science fiction reverence in there mm. uh, with, without uh, it becoming too explicit and I, I kind of like that so I, I give a I provide a little bit of a, a, a color a, a narrative color mm. say here look this could be a science fiction thing uh, and or it could be something else entirely <laughs> exactly it, it's there is something happening there which which takes your hand and says look at it actually you have to make up the story by yourself mm. when I went to see Lumiere 2 in Barcelona at Mutech a couple of years ago um, I found that the people watching were quite rowdy like the crowd was really cheering a lot laughing a lot uh, there was a lot of moments that were a bit more playful I think than when I went to see Lumiere again last year at Volksbühne do you like it when your audience has a kind of big reaction to your shows? 
Yeah. I mean, audience reacts always different. And I, I, I don't have a preferred reaction or something like that. What I like is that people either enjoy it or at least are touched by it. You can also be touched by things that you don't generally enjoy. Um, the, 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 I guess the most uninteresting thing that could happen is that people are just indifferent. Like, yeah, it was okay. That's the last thing you want. Mm. Someone says it was okay. Yes, that's that's kind of white noise in the background. Mm. If people say this is really really crap, um, then you probably also touch them somehow. And of course, if people say this is, was beautiful or I. Uh, it made me smile or it made me happy or I have tons of ideas uh, these are all kinds of reactions where I I personally can very much relate to because this is the ideas I want I want to take home from going mm. to a museum going to an installation going to a concert too mm. do you think it's um I don't know I guess a mark of your again growing confidence that you are kind of overcoming this fear of people being indifferent to something that you're working on are you no longer worried about that when you're putting together a show I'm always worried about it <laughs> because uh, times change people change nothing in life is for granted and the same goes for for the perception of of what you do as an artist sales change you know do sales change because what I'm doing musically is not so good or do they change because no one buys records anymore or for whatever factor Yes, there's always moments where where there's insecurity, and um, yeah, I I just never take anything for granted. Do you feel like your shows have helped kind of a new perception of laser shows, for example? Do you think that it it has helped bring it into a more serious art form? I'm not sure what a serious art form is, but I think. Uh, I certainly inspired a few people to have a different look at the medium or start working with it. Um, that's that's certain. I mean, most the most prominent example I believe is the the, the feedback uh, Christopher Bauder and me got for for Deep Web. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, this is it's an insane project and it's super expensive and it's a work which only works due to the genius of a lot of involved people. It opened also a lot of doors because suddenly people were interested in those kinds of things. Mm. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I inspired a few people to actually have a different look at this whole thing. So what has changed, uh, just going back to Lumiere, mm. uh, what has changed kind of between the second and third version? I, like I was reading an interview that you did recently where you were talking about having this red square on the, sc on the screen for like just a little bit longer in this version. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, Lumiere 2 uh, came to existence because I was extremely unsatisfied. And Lumiere 3 came to, the exist came to life because I was satisfied and had new ideas. So the, the big thing with Lumiere 3 for me was I wanted to uh, explore a, th a few ideas which I couldn't explore within Lumiere 2 which is kind of similar to release a new album you have you do something and whilst you're doing it you collect material which doesn't don't fit in your current 
line of work and you save it for later and then later you do it. The difference between Lumia 2 and 3 in, in many ways is details, but some of the details are extremely important. For instance, that I, I took over a few parts of Lumia 2, but uh, carefully polished them and cleaned them up. And I believe by doing so, I changed them in a, in a quite radical way, even if I didn't do much to it. Uh, this is the, the in parts, the, the magic of, of artistic explorations that sometimes tiny little changes have a huge impact. You repeat a certain gesture at the end of a longer loop and suddenly you, this completely changes the perception of this, the whole structure because what becomes a development from A to B suddenly becomes, by, by repetition of the A part, suddenly the B part becomes something that is within a larger structure. Mm. And it, those things are totally fascinating. How you, you changed the perception of a, of a piece by, by editing. Mm. I guess this just brings us back to, to, to movie editing again, like director's cut. You think, well, what's the difference? These two, two, <laughs> these two minutes yeah. added at the end, the two minutes added at, at the director's cut of Blade Runner, which made it really clear that Decker is a replicant too. <laughs> Buff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for, like for you, for example, with this red square that I was talking about it, and having it kind of be on the screen for a bit longer, it, does that also have have to do with having a bit more trust in your audience to kind of pay attention to that those three extra seconds? Not more trust in the audience, but more trust in myself that uh, I can make it interesting enough to allow to do that. So it, it's not that I trust the audience more, but... I trust myself more to to make it happen because it's not just making it longer then it also needs to be bolder louder more massive and I guess one of the essential changes in Lumia 3 as a matter of fact is that I completely redid the sound and that I <coughs> already uh, at the Barbican during soundtrack noticed suddenly I have parts which I can make really loud <laughs> and I really want to make them loud. I, I didn't want to make Lumia 2 so loud because also as a lack of confidence about the, the quality of the sound. Mm. And now there is parts where I, I feel that they, they really, really need to be on the edge of being too loud. And that's of course also great because this again also changes the perception of the piece. I play with that. I play with the fact that I create a, an overload situation, a very deliberate sonically and visual overload. And I do this with confidence. And I know that if I do this long enough, then the moment where it all falls apart will become beautiful because it's, I built this nice ramp of tension up there. And I can do this because the sound is so good that people are willing to take the ride. Do you think that people are more willing to kind of go along for the ride with this third iteration? I, I think that the piece is, or I, I hope, that the piece is offers more to, to the audience for a multitude of reasons. So there is a chance that someone who is, is coming from a sound background is enjoying the fact bec uh, that the piece has a, 
has a far more matured uh, and detailed and to the point sound design. Someone who is interested into laser graphics uh, will find things which are cool from their perspective. There's, there's many potential hooks why people could want to see that. It ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. And I believe Lumia 3 has the potential to tick more boxes by for more different people than the, the previous iterations because in in every detail aspect it has more to offer without um, losing the, the the general idea you know it's I, I'm still not drawing Mickey Mouses <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like there's going to be a fourth version for example like what are your hopes for the future of Lumiere mm. Ach, yeah, hmm. fourth version. <laughs> Fifth version, sixth version. I, at the moment, I mean, you know, so, so such things are always uh, fragile. At the moment, I would say I'd like to work on Lumiere a little bit longer, which in my thinking of time means maybe one or two years. Right. But that would probably never be a Lumia 4, uh, but a 3 point something iteration. Mm. I mean, I'm right now working at the 3.1, and perhaps there will be a 3.2, 3.3 version. And each version basically means that I spend one week where I'm working nonstop on either adding a new piece to it or refining existing pieces, stuff like that. But it won't change anything in a very radical way. And I believe that afterwards, so let's say in two years, I'm pretty much done with that project. Uh, I have other ideas what to do with lasers. You seem like the type of person who's never really truly finished with a work. Yeah, way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I would be, you know, I need deadlines. That's. That's the only way how I can operate. Mm. If I have a deadline, then I deliver. As someone who is always seeking for perfection and obviously never reaches it, uh, there's always this kind of nagging moment there that I think, it's not, not there yet. <laughs> but when I have my soundtrack there and I feel that everything goes well, then comes this moment where I feel like, okay, it's going to be fine. <laughs>